You don't really need to know, or probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. It's Trish in for Kira. In today's episode, we take a look at the limits of human survivability in extreme heat. Science says we should eat with our mouths open and dead spiders are being turned into robots. But first, it was this night in 1879 that Thomas Edison was about to go to sleep and dream up something pretty important. On the 8th of August, 143 years ago, Edison was granted the patent for the electric pen. Years later, it was adapted to fulfil an entirely different role and repurposed as the first electric tattoo needle. This year has been one of record-breaking temperatures. In March, April and May, India and its neighbours endured repeated heat waves that exposed more than a billion people to dangerously hot conditions. In Europe, the UK smashed past its previous record highs and on the continent, the heat in Portugal and France also reached never-before-seen highs during the unrelenting heat wave. As the planet steadily and rapidly warms, scientists fear we may already be edging closer to the limits of human survivability. While temperatures in the 40s are certainly hot, these numbers don't tell the full story. Researchers are more concerned with the measure that is known as the wet bulb temperature. Matthew Hubber is a professor of Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Scientists at Purdue University and he explains why. We're all warm-blooded and so we produce heat in our bodies and we have to lose that through our skin. So the wet bulb temperature is sort of a theoretical maximum for uh, how much you could possibly cool your body. It tells you the temperature that your skin would reach if it was sweating as much as it possibly could. The curious term comes from how it's measured. It's kind of like you took a regular old thermometer with mercury in it, and then you put it in a wet sock, and then you just swung it around your head for a long time until as much of the water as can evaporate from that wet sock has evaporated into the air. And then the temperature of that thermometer will be what we would call the wet bulb temperature. As a measure of the compound effect of both heat and humidity, new research has found that we may actually already be nearing the threshold for human survivability. In 2010, scientists estimated that theoretical heat stress limit to be at a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. But new research from Penn State suggests that a general real-world threshold for human heat stress is much lower. In warm and humid conditions, the subjects in the study were unable to tolerate heat stress at wet bulb temperatures closer to 30 degrees or 31 degrees Celsius. In hot and dry conditions, the wet bulb temperature was even lower, ranging from 25 degrees to 28 degrees. If the human body's tolerance for heat stress is generally lower than scientists have realised, that could mean millions more people will be at risk from the deadliest heat sooner than scientists thought. We've known for a long time that there is a a threshold wet bulb temperature beyond which human beings have a, a hard time continuing to live and work. We are just approaching the point where places on Earth for short periods of time will reach those thresholds for people. But as the world warms by several more degrees, more than three degrees, more and more of the world hits that threshold and stays above it for sustained periods of time. And that's really bad because that means that even if you're fit and you're acclimated and you're used to the heat, There's simply not a good way for you to continue to be able to function and do work unless you're in an air-conditioned or otherwise um, climate-adjusted environment. 
As of 2020, there were few reports of wet bulb temperatures around the world reaching 35 degrees Celsius, but climate simulations project that limit could be regularly exceeded in parts of South Asia and the Middle East by the middle of the century. As heat waves begin affecting more people's lives more frequently, the question of what we can do about them is becoming even more important. Bone fractures are a global public health issue. In 2019, about 178 million people suffered from some sort of bone fracture. Ouch! The risk of fracture increases with age and is greatest in women. They can lead to work absence, decrease productivity and even disability. One of the most common remedies to support bone health is popping the sunshine vitamin, vitamin D. These supplements have long been recommended by medics around the world to prevent bone fractures, but do they really help? According to a new study published in the New England and Journal of Medicine, vitamin D may not be the bone-supporting shield it's thought to be. Vitamin D had no effect on the risk of fractures, and that was true in people who started with low levels of vitamin D. That means those who had vitamin D deficiency had no benefit from taking vitamin D supplements. That was Dr. Stephen Cummings, a research scientist at the California Pacific Medical Center Research Institute. While he's steadfast in his analysis of vitamin D supplements for the general population, he does admit there are exceptions. People with conditions like celiac or Crohn's disease, for example, do need vitamin D supplements. But how Cummings sees it, there are other factors at play that have led to the rest of us popping vitamin pills like candy. There's a lot of advertisement about vitamin D. And a lot of people get tested for vitamin D and they find that they're low and the natural thing to do is to take vitamin D so that you're no longer low. Well, these trials have shown that even if you have low levels, vitamin D doesn't help. So that means then people should not get tested. And if they find that they're low, you have to think twice, vitamin D is not going to help. Still to come on the Sunday 7, a scientific case to chew with your mouth open and the world's rarest diamond is discovered in Angola. If you want to eat well and enjoy your food, it's time to throw out those table manners and chew with your mouth open. Charles Spence is a professor of experimental psychology at the University of Oxford and according to his research, we've been doing it all wrong when it comes to eating. So, Professor, what is it about chewing with our mouths open that actually makes food taste better? You know, while we all think we taste in our mouth, we experience the kind of the taste of food on our tongues, it turns out that most of the taste is really delivered by the sense of smell um, and in particular by what the scientists call kind of the retronasal sense of smell so it's kind of when you sniff like the bisto kid ah, bisto. that's orthonasal smell smelling stuff outside on its way in um, but whenever we eat and chew then kind of volatile rich air is pushed out from the back of the mouth into the back of the nose and this is kind of the second sense of smell and according to the scientists about 75 to 95% of what we all think we are tasting in our mouths, on our tongues, uh, is actually delivered by this retronasal sense of smell instead. 
once you realize that 75 to 95% of what you taste, what you enjoy in food and drink really comes from the sense of smell, the question becomes how to maximize the amount of those volatile, rich aromas that make their way from the back of the mouth into the back of the nose. If you have your mouth closed, then when you chew and swallow, you will pulse some volatile, rich air into the back of the nose. But if you look at what the experts, kind of the sensory experts do, it's a very noisy business because they're all tasting with their mouths open uh, because they've realized that they can get more air into their mouths uh, and hence release more of the volatiles through that kind of open mouth tasting. And I think we should all be thinking about doing the same ourselves, whether or not we happen to be a food or wine or coffee expert in order to maximize those retronasal aromas uh, and enjoyment of food. Eating with our mouths open isn't the only habit you've suggested we need to ditch. Could you tell me a little bit about why we should ditch the knife and fork too? Nearly everything where we eat in the West at uh, in polite society comes to our mouth with the aid of a spoon or a fork. And yet until 2011, when we did a first scientific study, no one had investigated what the impact of eating with cutlery was on the taste of food and whether you could enhance the taste of food by changing the design of cutlery, by changing the weight, uh, and in others' hands, by, you know, by using your hands in, instead. Um, and so I think they, there is you know, a lot of scope there to um, just a question, why do we do things the way we do, and sort of scientifically study whether we could challenge some of the uh, etiquette and, uh, and customs that we've grown to know uh, if our aim ultimately is to you know, enjoy what we're eating more. How else can we manipulate the environment and conditions of how we eat to enhance flavour? So much of what we enjoy is sort of sweetness in food, but we should all be eating less sugar. Most of us should be. But when you know the food companies actually reduce the amount of sugar, salt and fat in, in our favourite brands, then consumers you know, start complaining and saying, what are you doing to our favourite brand? Put it back the way it was before. We don't like it anymore. Why are you messing with our foods? Um, and so the kind of food companies are in a bit of a predicament. But one of the solutions here may be to use more sweet smell, sweet aromas in what we are um, eating. Because if you add something like the smell of vanilla, the smell of strawberry, the smell of caramel to a food, it can actually make it taste sweeter, but without any calories at all. And by open mouth eating, by enhancing the amount of those those sweet smells that are going from the back of the mouth into the nose, we may be able to get an enhanced sweet taste uh, with a little bit less of the unhealthy stuff. So the people scoffing at such poor table manners being encouraged, what's your message for them? I think people should think differently about, or at least question how they interact with food uh, and realise that all the way from, you know, the molecular, modernist, fancy, San Pellegrino-listed restaurants and chefs uh, through to their home environment, People are increasingly questioning, you know, why do we have to eat in silence? Why do we always have to eat with cutlery? Uh, Why can't we play with our food? We're all told don't play with your food, but why not? And it's really, for me at least, exciting to see how many of those um, standard ways of interacting with food are increasingly being questioned. And the positive results for the eating experience, both in terms of the taste and flavour, perhaps also in terms of the healthfulness and certainly in terms of the enjoyability you might get from eating differently.
miners in Angola have unearthed a rare pink diamond that's believed to be the largest found in 300 years. Dubbed the Lulo Rose, the 170-carat pink-tinted diamond was discovered at the Lulo mine in the country's diamond-rich northeast. It's thought to be one of the largest of its kinds ever found, although it would have to be cut and polished to uncover its true value. Similar pink diamonds have sold for an eye-watering 71 million US dollars. But what is it that's so special about these stones and what gives them that alluring rose tone. As scientists, I can tell you why yellow diamond is yellow. It's a little bit of nitrogen in the diamond. I can tell you why a blue diamond is blue. It's a little bit of boron in the diamond. Um, I can't tell you why a pink diamond is pink. And it's a little bit exasperating when the highest price per carat gemstones in the world are being sold and everybody's talking about them, everybody loves them and yet you can't tell people why they're pink. That was Russell Feather, Gem Collections Manager at the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History. The lack of impurities in pink diamonds that Russell just mentioned has led scientists to speculate that the colour may be down to something else entirely. While some scientists attribute the colour to some kind of seismic shock that altered the stone's molecular structure, others are still searching for the elusive molecular defects. But for many people, diamonds will never be anything less than perfect. Still to come on the Sunday 7, Saudi Arabia's ambitious new city and scientists are turning dead spiders into robots. Right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. contemporary city needs a full redesign. What if we removed cars? What if we got rid of streets? What if we innovated in the public space? What if everything you needed was always a five-minute walk away? What if invisible technology generates carefree and open urban space? What if sustainability was not a goal, but a given? What if we built the line? The line. It's the name given to Saudi Arabia's latest city in the works as part of the nation's largest neon megacity project. Instead of communities sprawling outwards from a central location, they would be built vertically and arranged, well, in a line, hence the name. Even though the city stretches 170 kilometres, it would do away with cars entirely and travelling the entire length would take just 20 minutes and each individual community would be self-contained so that almost anything you could need, a school, doctor or supermarket would only be a five minutes walk away. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature. The line will be home to nine million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. 
The Saudi government says the line would run on 100% clean energy and use of sensors and AI to manage the city services. All of this is to be nested in the pristine natural landscape of the Tabuk province with apparently minimal impact on the environment. Flashy renders and promo videos showcase the city's giant glass mirrored wall, 170 kilometres long, 200 metres wide and 500 metres tall. That's even taller than the Empire State Building. It would have greenery stretching along the top, an open-air ventilation system to maintain an ideal climate year-round and can house up to 9 million people. It sounds like a utopia, right? Or perhaps a dystopia. So far, these have been the prevailing sides to the line debate, but perhaps we're seeing it all wrong. As terrifying or marvellous as the project seems, some, like science communicator Hank Green, are sceptical it'll be even built at all. He took to TikTok and shared with his 7 million followers exactly why. At the root, the problem is we are creating a space for humans to live in. And so the question becomes, are there 9 million or even 900,000 humans that want to move here? No. Why? Like, what's the thing that they do? Is there industry here? Are there warehouses? Are there laboratories? Like, where do these people work? Like, how do you get businesses to move here at the same time as the people? Cities grow organically. You can't. We've tried many times to create these uh, these like from scratch megacities. We fail over and over again because we don't anticipate the needs. It's like trying to create, like trying to imagine every person's potential need and get it in there before you st- before you even start building. So if they're not solving the problem they say they're solving for, what problem are they solving for? A PR problem. It's just a PR video. It's like, look how fancy we are. Look how Saudi Arabia isn't all about oil. We also, I don't know, build really 100-mile-long cities. They're not going to build that thing. With no clear date for when the line will be completed, only time will tell. Reanimating corpses and turning them into robots sounds like a far-fetched Frankenstein reboot, but that's exactly what a group of researchers are doing. A group of engineers at Rice University have figured out a way to take dead wolf spiders and use them as machines to pick up and put down objects. The spider works just like a tiny arcade claw machine, only much creepier. Researchers have dubbed this use of biotic materials as robotic components necrobotics. Whilst the idea of using dead arachnids may be slightly off-putting, the spider's mechanism of movement are certainly intriguing to engineers. This is Daniel Preston, Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Rice University. The unique thing about spiders is that they actually don't have antagonistic muscle pairs. So in a human, we have our biceps and our triceps. Uh, They work to both flex and then extend the elbow joint. But when you think about spiders, they have flexor muscles that will bring their joints uh, and appendages in towards the body, but they don't have extensors. And instead they do that with hydraulic pressure that they generate uh, inside of the main cavity or chamber of their body. And so because of that, when they die, that's why you see spiders curled up. But at the same time, that means that we can use hydraulic pressure when we use the spider as the material for our gripper to take advantage of that and extend all of its legs or joints. To create their gripper, researchers stuck a needle into the spider's hydraulic chamber and by puffing small amounts of air through a syringe, the scientists could extend and retract the spider's leg at will. Faye Yap led the research at Rice University and said even she was shocked at how well the manipulation worked. We took the spider, 
we placed the needle in it, not knowing what was going to happen. We kind of had like an estimate of where we wanted to um, place the needle. And when we did it, it worked. The first time, right off the bat actually. And that was really like, I don't even know how to describe it, that moment when you see it move. The dead spiders could pick up more than 130% of their own body weight and last through 1,000 open-close cycles. The rice team says necrobiotic grippers could have multiple applications, including for the assembly of things like microelectronics and for collecting specimens. So one of the applications we could see this being used for is micromanipulation, and that could include things like microelectronic devices. We're excited about it because it also offers the potential to reduce waste streams. So these grippers, as you might guess, made from these biotic materials are compostable or biodegradable. It's a positive start, but the researchers say there's still a way to go. Without any kind of coating on the corpse, the spiders were only functional for two days because dehydration made their joints brittle. They say future research could include exploring different coatings for the spiders, experimenting with moving every leg individually and studying different species like smaller spiders and scorpions. Spooky. Every year, countless millions of trees are felled worldwide to satisfy our demand for paper and cardboard. Despite 50 years of talking about the paperless office, we're still not there and demand for paper is rising. In the last 40 years, paper usage had grown by 400%. But to get the product we're all accustomed to, the process uses lots of heat, much of it created by polluting coal or gas. Pulp and paper is the fourth biggest carbon emitting industry worldwide. So a group of scientists are now aiming to cut the amount of planet heating CO2 emissions by reducing demand for office paper. To do this, they've invented a magical gadget that sucks the ink off printer paper so each sheet can be used 10 times over. The tech for this has been developed by an Israeli company called Reap Technologies. Barak Yokantili is the company CEO and he explained to WION News how the process works. A printer is basically works exactly like a printer, except that it does the reverse. A printer basically takes, you put paper in, clean paper in, and basically you print on it, and then the paper comes out as a print, as a single print, which we call. And basically a deprinter is pretty much very similar to a printer, except it does reverse. You put a single print uh, after you print it into the tray, and it deprints it through a laser process. And at the output, you have a clean sheet ready for reprinting. The company says that this tech would allow for a considerable decrease in paper consumption and a process that CEO has described as circular printing. The market for circular printing actually encompasses the entirety of the printer market as it is today. The current market is actually a linear uh, printing market and our aim is to bring it to the whole print market. But we're focusing right now on the enterprise office printing segment. What we're trying to do is do everything that we can, possibly can, to keep products as long as possible and have the useful life. And just that uh, our technology actually enables that for the print and paper sector, at least on all printed matter, to allow them to give them a second and a third and actually a tenth life. So it means that we don't need to cut down trees anymore and we're conserving all the resources that are usually uh, consumed in the normal process. As paper consumption continues to rise, the company hopes that this tech will revolutionize the market forever. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend.
Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.